for us, COAST, the Children of Adults support team and the work we do is not just end of life, grief and loss. It's a lot of new diagnoses, a lot of change in prognosis, a lot of transitions of care or long-term hospitalization. So we've really seen that shift too, is that people are not just calling because there's kids who are dealing with loss and imminent urgent. They're, they're thinking about, oh, this mom just got a new breast cancer diagnosis and she's not sure how to talk to her kids. And so it's really become this proactive, really not this urgent rush of everybody's freaking out because kids are suddenly on an adult ICU. They're thinking about how do we best support this family and meet all their needs, which is such a different framework. Welcome to the Child Life Wildlife Podcast, a platform dedicated to sharing the honest ins and outs and vulnerable truths about the child life profession with your host, Jessica Lewin. Come and gain tangible next steps and confidence as you learn how to use your child life skills, protect your mental health, and glean inspiration, hope, and ideas from fellow certified child life specialists, students, and professionals. And now, here's your host, Jessica Lewin. Hello, and welcome to the Child Life Wildlife Podcast. Today I have on the show Shira Miller. She has been a child life specialist for almost two decades, and she has experience working in a hospital that has a COAST program. COAST stands for Children of Adult Support Team, and they have really prioritized helping those children who are coming in to visit a loved one, whether that be for a new cancer diagnosis or end of life or an accident visit, anything at all. And they've just really learned what kind of resources there are out there to help with that and are really leaning into that as child life specialists. Shira has a wealth of knowledge in lots of different areas, and I just really appreciate her wisdom that she shares about so many things. I'm not going to spoil a single thing because she says it perfectly. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Shira Miller on working with children of adult patients. Hi, Shira. Thank you so much for being on the Child Life Wildlife Podcast. Great to be here. I'm really looking forward to talking with you. I'm excited for this conversation. I would love to start with just a moment to highlight you a little bit. So who you are, fun facts, or anything that you'd like me and my listeners to know about you. Sure. Um, I've been a child life specialist for about almost 20 years now, which is outrageous. All at the same hospital. Like I did my volunteering, my internship, started some new programs, Um, I've been a child life specialist across outpatient settings and also covered in inpatient settings. I started our children of adults support team, which is our COAST team. That's the acronym. And I'm also adjunct faculty at a couple of institutions where I live. And so it's really been exciting to be able to impact student learning at an undergraduate level, at a graduate level. I also happen to be fortunate enough to live in the same city as my whole family. So Mm -hmm. my parents, my siblings, and my little nieces are all local. So for me, you know, when I'm not working, work is important. I'm super committed and really passionate about the work I do, but I love being able to spend time with my family, with my friends. I've been in the same city for the last 20 years or so, but I mostly grew up in Canada, which I think is a really interesting (laughs) fact to know about me Um, out on the West coast, like in the mountains. So for me, being able to get back out there, traveling internationally, doing art and kind of self-expression, things are things I really like to enjoy when I'm not working in child life. That's awesome. Very cool. 
I'm kind of excited to deep dive a little bit further into some of your prior roles because it sounds like you wear a lot of hats. So talk to me a little bit about units, departments, roles, hats you've worn as a child life specialist over these last almost 20 years. Sure. So I actually realized, I don't know that I said that I'm actually actually now the manager of the Child Life and Creative Arts Therapies Department. Yeah. Um, I've been the manager for the last, I think we're about to hit five years. Wow. I haven't actually like truly been counting, but it's been mm-hmm. about almost five years. I started in child life thinking I wanted to be an inpatient child life specialist. Like mm-hmm. even like, even in my professional career, like not just as, as an intern, like as an intern, mm-hmm. I was dabbling, but, and then um, as I was finishing my internship though, there was an opportunity to start piloting some services in the radiology department. And it was something that had never happened in the hospital that I was in. And it was so well received and so well supported. I did that for maybe about seven years or so. And then was able to watch that department grow from a space where they had no idea about pediatric best practices and psychosocial care mm. um, to now being a space that's like at the forefront of approaches. Like it's almost like one of those situations where the staff do such a wonderful job themselves. And for me, that's a really motivating and empowering thing to see because my child life philosophy is really about, it's not about us doing Mm -hmm. the work, right? Like Mm -hmm. it's truly about putting those things in place. So kids get and families get what they need in healthcare. And then around seven years, we had a new director of pediatric anesthesia and we put together a proposal that was to pilot child life services in our surgery departments. We hadn't had that either. Um, That was sort of our last, we felt at that point, like place we wanted to expand Mm -hmm. and it was accepted by our senior leadership. So I then piloted child life services in the surgery departments and that was picked up as a position. So I was there for, I think about another seven (laughs) or so (laughs) years um, and watched that grow. And then from there, I transitioned to doing a lot of, I call it clinical support, but pivoting to different spaces as I was transitioning into leadership. So when our director retired, I was able to take over as the manager of the child life department. That's, we did some restructuring anyway. And for a long time, I was the manager, but also still clinical. Wow. So still covering surgery, dabbling in other departments, finding that balance. But all through that, we had been developing something called COAST, which mm-hmm. was our children of adult support team. We came up with the acronym while one of our interns was around and had learned that another hospital nationally had named their program with a really cool acronym. And we thought it would be a great opportunity anyway. um, And that program really focused on we're a large teaching hospital in a very robust community where we see lots and lots of adult pay. It's a really large academic medical center too. So Mm. it's a very big hospital. We are a children's hospital within that adult hospital and we have lots of pediatric services, but we also have a lot of adult patients and we have a lot of adult patients who have children mm-hmm. or grandchildren or neighbors. And so we were finding there was a really big need and a lot of reach out for can we and how can we support these kids of adult patients? What would that look like? And so we developed the program and it's had a lot of iterations over the years. So mm-hmm. those are all the hats I've worn clinically. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've covered everywhere from the ED to the NICU and everything inpatient. Yeah. And an adjunct professor. Oh, yes. Right. And an adjunct, both yeah. at an undergraduate, like at the at the hospital that I work at, I'm an undergrad or an adjunct professor, which was a really unique appointment that I got just two years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I was appointed adjunct faculty there. And so I teach uh, I designed a lifespan and child develop. A, no, it's not child development. It's a lifespan course. Like it's mm-hmm. across the lifespan. So it goes from birth through death. Okay. And I co-taught it last year with another professor who 
specializes more in young adults and up. Mm -hmm. Um, And I taught the child, you know, teens and under side of it. And it was a great opportunity for child life to pivot into the academic side of our institution that had never been done before. And I was really excited. I love academia as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I taught it again this year. So lifespan development, but I taught the whole course and was able to really, you know, connect with the students on a different level. They're all undergraduate health sciences students. Mm -hmm. So looking to go into like who knows what profession some of them, you know, they're not even sure yet. So just having that lifespan development and hearing them talk about the impact that has on their healthcare journey has been pretty incredible because they don't think they don't realize how much knowing that information mm-hmm. can influence the work they do. And we talk a lot about family-centered care and bedside approaches and access and accessibility, DEI, like we, we weave in obviously so many topics. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'm also adjunct at a graduate school where I teach in the child life program. So I teach a foundations and child life course and also a pediatric ethics and healthcare course. And I've been doing that, the foundations course, this will just be the second year, but ethics I've been teaching for like five or six years now. Wow. Um, I love. That's awesome. I actually love that you're teaching not just child life students. Like I think that's such a unique way that a child life specialist can touch so many hopefully future health professionals and they can say like I took a class with a child life specialist as my teacher like that's really cool that's yeah I run into some of them like within the hospital because some of them are like x-ray techs right now or different things and they may or may not interface with us but I I also felt that way and and again for me like I said in the beginning like it really is about empowering everyone to understand and learn about the importance of putting best practices into place and sometimes it's even just best practices in terms of like bedside approach to care. It doesn't have to yeah. even be about kids. So to me, I like that domino effect mm-hmm. because we're always going to have jobs and like there will always be a place for child life mm-hmm. in healthcare. I think people sometimes at a point we're worried about that, right? If we taught yeah. everybody how to do what we do, do we then become something that people don't yeah. don't need to hire? But I, I strongly, I mean, clearly I've been doing this for 20 years. Like I really, or 17, 17 18, we're yeah. getting close to 20. Yeah. But in all fairness, like, I think we have to remember that, like, if we keep it to ourselves, we're doing it to service, right? 100%. Because then those kids and families may not have the tools they need if we're not there 24-7 and we're not there 24-7. And we have other kids to work with who we can work with if we've empowered other staff and other families to be able to implement things on their own. So Yeah. Oh, gosh, I love that. That's great. So this COAST position that you started, was this a position – that was already funded by the hospital or did you see a need and advocate for the position or what was the overall goal of just having this position? Yeah. The short answer is neither. Okay. So to make things really complicated, I was like, do I tell you that ahead of time or do I just surprise you? Um, but n- neither. Uh-huh. The unique thing about, so Coast started because we as child life specialists and our then directors saw mm-hmm the need. Basically, we were getting a lot of calls to our office. So we yeah. realized we, that was we didn't even have to do a needs analysis. We were like, this is clearly something we're being asked to do. And well, within our scope of practice, mm-hmm. obviously, and something at the time. So we're talking like over 15 years ago, mm-hmm. uh, 15-ish years ago, you know, somewhere in there. So at the time, it wasn't so, so like it wasn't unheard of in our field, but it was much newer and different then now I feel like a lot of hospitals, especially in settings like ours, people are like, oh yeah, we have someone who sees kids of adult patients. It's like yeah. not a big deal. But this was sort of in the beginning of all of that. Um, and so- What year was that? Do you know roughly? Around, like I started in radiology in 2006. Mm-hmm. And by like 08, 2010, like I was doing a lot more of the coast 
consults. We just weren't calling it that yet. Yeah. But shortly after we named it and basically for us, it was, there were a hand only, our team was much smaller then. So at the, that point there were only four child life specialists on our team. Mm-hmm. Now we're a team of 11. So we've almost tripled. Yeah. Um, when we realized this need for the coast consults to be you know, completed and provide that service, we all of us were in other dedicated spaces. Mm. So it was something that we took on in addition to our dedicated unit. It wasn't a separate position. Yeah, it still is not a separate position. All yeah. these years later. Um, so myself and another child life specialist who were comfortable with those types of consults and enjoyed them, for lack of a better word. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess I should say, like, for us, Coast, the Children of Adults support team and the work we do is not just end of life, mm-hmm. grief and loss. It's a lot of new diagnoses, mm-hmm. a lot of change in prognosis, a lot of transitions of care or long-term hospitalization. So we've really seen that shift too, is that people are not just calling because there's Somebody's kids dying. dealing with loss, correct, mm-hmm. and imminent and urgent. They're, they're thinking about, oh, this mom just got a new breast cancer diagnosis and she's not sure how to talk to her kids. And yeah. so it's really become this proactive, really not this urgent rush of everybody's freaking out because kids are suddenly on an adult ICU. They're thinking about how do we best support this family mm-hmm. and meet all their needs, which is such a different framework. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so it's never been a dedicated FTE. So we didn't have to like push in that sense to get something approved. Sure. We just pivoted a little bit of what we were doing and we did a lot of messaging with staff about expectations. Mm-hmm. So the idea that we couldn't always come at the drop of a hat because we were doing other things and that, you know, the funding for us was from pediatrics, sure. from our women's and children's nursing. So we had to prioritize, no matter how much we recognize the very important value of that work, mm-hmm. we still had an obligation to the spaces that were hiring us. Yeah. Um, and then it's evolved to be different people, more people joined and being able to do consults, less people did be, were able to do them. There was a point in time uh, just in the beginning of COVID, so like three-ish, four-ish years ago, where we had a specialist on our team as we had grown much bigger. And she was um, a dedicated, more dedicated to the role because she was a clinical support child specialist, so a flow mm-hmm. essentially. Mm-hmm. And on the days where we didn't need her extra coverage subbing in for somebody. She was really um, creating new resources. She was going on to the adult units and like mm-hmm. promoting the services, educating staff, putting up contact information and really setting those parameters yeah. around expectations and also around the expectations of like, what services could we provide? Like, mm-hmm. what did it mean when we said like we would help caregivers help them navigate how to talk with the kids about what was going on, right. how to make sure they had the right, con- right? Like, what did that look like? And then she left us to go do some other really cool work. And mm-hmm. we didn't, we rearranged FTEs at that time. So we didn't, we didn't replace that particular position. Yeah. We just turned it back into a committee. So right now we actually have a committee of, there's like seven of us wow. that do the consults, which is yeah. amazing. And we, we've revamped some of the resources and we've changed how we communicate about it. And so we disseminate the wealth, I like to say, mm-hmm. a little bit. So it's also, you know, everyone else also has a dedicated unit, but it's also just like the work we do anywhere in child life, which I would imagine has come up in many of your conversations with us, is that it's the emotional toll mm-hmm. that our work takes in general is so high. And working with adult fa- and families in that context and mm-hmm. t- 
you know, it's, it, there's always an intensity about it, right? A new diagnosis, a change in prognosis, yeah. transition to hospice, end of life, talking through and having those conversations and trying to guide a caregiver or another family member on say, using words like death with children and explaining those or cancer. It's a lot. And so mm-hmm. for one person to take all that on, I think can be really valuable. And also the model that we have with this group of us doing it is nice because you get to collaborate in a different way and people get a little bit of a breather. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do. I do like that. And I understand that that probably helps you all stay going in this coast program because nobody's getting emotionally burnt out. So yeah, that's awesome. So when you're called to the coast role, what does a typical day look like for you? If there's any pillars or routines or things that you can count on happening, what does that look like? The biggest thing for us is that the calls can come in in different ways. They can Mm -hmm. come in from residents, fellows, physician providers, bedside nursing, charge nurses, social work chaplains, Mm -hmm. sometimes coming from anesthesia um, partners because we have really strong relationships with our anesthesia providers and the some of our anesthesiologists and our all of the residents from anest- the anesthesia department rotate through intensive care rotations. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the anesthesiologists, some of them are also intensivists. So they are sometimes in anesthesia and sometimes on an ICU. Sure. So they know us in other capacities. So actually, a lot of our consults for, at a point were coming from them because they started to realize like, oh, wait, I know them from surgery. Like, I know what they can do. Um, That's cool. That's great. It's really cool. It was different. And it also allows us, because we have a very different rapport with them, to also, there's times where I've been like, hey, are you going back to your you know intensivist role soon? Remember, if you see or hear of any family situations, you know you can reach out. And so, and sometimes we're, we throw the doors wide open too much. And then we have consults and we're There's a lot of them. We're trying to navigate all of our jobs, but it it is a good way to build those relationships and advocate for different practices and help have them help spread the word. Because like anything else in child life, sometimes if you haven't seen it, it's hard to know what it looks like and what you're asking for. But when someone else knows what child life is or can do, that call can look really different. So when the calls come in, either they come in through an Epic consult or they can come in through a phone call to our office. We take them in any which way. There's a few providers who have even shot us an email because they know Mm -hmm. us from something else psychosocial oncology or our adult palliative care team, they all know us as well. So sometimes they'll shoot an email and be like, I have a patient. Can you chat for a bit? From there, we start a thread in Epic, which is our online documentation um, resource. And it includes all seven of us who are on the Coast Committee right now. And it basically is an introduction to the patient. And you're in that epic chat thread, you're able to put the patient name at the top, mm-hmm. like you, you can attach a patient name. So we basically start a conversation that says, I got a consult, here's the information I know. And either that person says, I'm good, I can take it on, I'll keep you updated, or they're throwing it to the group to say, I can't take this on today, who can? Mm-hmm. And once we delineate who's going to take it, we assign ourselves as the lead. So we're able to really keep track of who's in charge of which consult. It also helps me as a manager I take them on now less frequently. I'm more of a backup to the backup, but I can watch and see, you know, in the last three days, somebody's done like six of these. I need to check on them maybe in a different way, Mm -hmm. knowing that they're taking on. Um, And then it's up to the person who's taken on the consult to gather more information. So the biggest ask and something we created in the beginning that I continue to emphasize is gathering that information, calling back the person who put in the consult, speaking to them directly and really asking about, what is the situation with the patient? What does the patient know and understand? What kind of family, like who's involved? Is there a significant other, another caregiver? Like what are those relationships? Who who has the kids? Like is it the patient's kids? Is mm-hmm. it 
the child, like is, if it's a grandparent, are there four adult humans with a bunch of little grandkids? Mm -hmm. And then also asking, what does the family know about child life? Did you or someone else introduce it? That's been a really important question. And I'll tell you why, because what we find is sometimes the person who calls says, oh, no, I just heard there were kids involved and I thought I'd call you. So sometimes we'll push back a little bit and say, could you go introduce services and we'll give them some scripting? And could you explain that this is the goal and the role of what we are and see if the family's interested? And sometimes they'll call us back and say, you know what? The family says they're great. Like they've explained everything to the kids. They feel confident talking to them. They're being honest. They have resources. They know you exist. They'll reach out. So what we were doing is trying to figure out like we don't need to come running across the hospital, one, if the family's not interested, but also helping staff recognize how to introduce what we do and what questions to ask to ascertain are we the right service line? Families are meeting so many people. Like, mm-hmm. True. So, and then from there, coming over, and then the other the other expectation that we've set is that whichever one of us is going to the unit, we're always talking to the bedside provider, mm-hmm. the nurse, before mm-hmm. we go into the room. Introduce ourselves, do a little bit more education so that, one, because I think anyone coming onto someone else's unit should introduce who you are and what you're providing to someone else's the nurse is caring for that patient all day. Absolutely. And to make sure that also, again, for me, any chance I can educate staff on what we're doing in a really positive, I like to call it gentle, proactive way is really mm-hmm. a great opportunity because then you're going to get more appropriate consults moving forward. Mm-hmm. And staff get really excited and they're very grateful. And and it, it can be so scary to think about how in the world is this new newly diagnosed human going to tell their kids about X or Y. And they're just like, there's a relief sometimes too. Yes. um, Yeah. In that service line. So then once we have all that, we would introduce ourselves to the, either to the patient, if it's appropriate to the patient and their significant other to the family, whoever we're supposed to be meeting and how the conversation unfolds, whether we have it bedside or in a conference room, like all depends on the context of the situation. Mm -hmm. And we give a lot of choice in that. Generally, our goal is to meet with the patient if appropriate and or the caregivers or other adults first. That was easier during COVID when the kids were not allowed in the building at first. And but the reason behind that was, again, to gather information, what do the adults understand? What have they told the kids? What do the kids know? And what do they want from us, right? What mm-hmm. are they looking for? What support are they are they needing? So we could set that framework and then make a plan for the kids. Um, we obviously will also go over sometimes if some, you know, if we're able. But those are usually more those urgent calls of like, there's two kids here about to come bedside, and we'll still do the same assessment and same questions. And sometimes we have to say, I'm really sorry we can't come, but we'll give lots of tips to the staff. And then we have lots of resources. So we've created handouts for every age range, let's call it like infant Mm -hmm. through teen. We have a set for end of life. We have a set for dealing with changes in a family situation. So more of like a new diagnosis, a change in prognosis, but not an end of life. Mm -hmm. Um, We have vetted book resources. So we have a list of books that we have all reviewed and have delineated for different reasons. We also stock books. So depending on the situation and the appropriateness, we also give them out Mm. like as consumables, like all, I mean, we go through so many books because we want to make sure families can access it. And yeah. we know that just giving them a list or saying like, try the library or Amazon, like not every, that's just not accessible to everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we also have hands-on resources or hands-on, like we call them family projects. I think most people would know them as legacy building or memory making, but mm-hmm. we like to call them family projects because of the approachability of that. Yeah. Um, 
yeah, that idea that like no one has to be dying for us to be doing this. Mm-hmm. And it, that it's just, and really we also know, I think from a lot of our experiences and research that the, the opportunity to do those things together makes more meaning and memory than often the tangible object that comes out of it. Right. So, yeah. Um, so we offer that too, depending again on the situation and what's happening. We've also started encouraging staff on the units to stock some of their own materials. And we've done some trainings on how to do those things as well. So it doesn't have to be us. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, that's awesome. So that's a typical consult. Yeah. So when working with this demographic, what are some skills or traits that you think are important to have? I think the biggest thing is patience and flexibility. Mm-hmm. That feels very cliche. It does. But, <laughs> but it does. But I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you in the context of why. Yes. Because because you're working with some of the most amazing staff who have such a strong skill set, but often not the skill set in supporting kids because mm-hmm. they don't have the child development background. And they will yeah. be the first to tell you that. This is like absolutely no knocks to any medical professional. It's just a different wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. So I think the patience to realize that what we think and is natural knowledge mm-hmm. is so not for others. The idea of sometimes even just like explain to the child what they might see before they go in the room, right? Offer to take a picture if the family wants so that they could show the kids at home. Like some of that is once some of the staff know it, it's amazing. So I think the patience to not get frustrated or whatever other word you might use that people are often calling us, but don't really know what they're calling and asking for. Mm-hmm. It's because, you know, you don't know what you need if you don't know what you need and you don't know what you need if you don't know what's available, but you know that there's someone else with a skill set. So as much as it can be sometimes like, okay, I've gotten three calls about this family and everybody is very concerned and I can't quite figure out what is the concern because it sounds like there's two teenagers bedside who are coping really well, but the idea that they're sitting in an ICU looking at their parent intubated is so heart wrenching mm-hmm. and traumatizing. And and the idea and thinking about the the staff are thinking about oh my gosh this huge impact. And for a child life specialist, we think about that, but we have the tools to be able to talk about it and work through it with them. Yeah. So the patience piece is really not about the work we're doing necessarily, but in how we're inter- interacting with and educating the staff. Mm-hmm. And then the flexibility piece, again, I think is the same reason is just like, you don't know about like, you're going onto an adult unit, it's not your own space. You don't always know if the ask you're coming over to fill is what you're going to fill. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think you need the skill set to have, which all of us do, but all of, a lot of us also start to work with certain populations of patients, right? Whether it's mm-hmm. a a diagnosis population or an age group. So that that breadth of scope, right? Because you could be walking over to talk to someone who has a toddler and a teen. You could be walking over to someone who has a child who has another disability that you also mm-hmm. need to take into consideration when you're helping them understand and navigate the relationships and the family dynamics. So it's nothing, it's nothing outside of our wheelhouse. Obviously it's well within, but mm-hmm. that skill and that knowledge of all of it, I know mm-hmm. it sounds really ridiculous, right? When it's when like our model, it's people who are my emergency room specialist, my PICU specialist. So everybody has a really strong skill set, but they have to like step back for a second, yeah, and pivot a little bit mm-hmm. to apply it to that space. Yeah, I was gonna say I what what you were talking about earlier relates to this part too of like going on to the adult ICU. I remember feeling nervous going on to a different unit, but then when you meet the nurse, you just see this 
they're so relieved. They're like, thank yep. God you're here. Thank you so much. You're yep. so appreciated to be there. And you immediately feel like, I, I know what I'm doing. I'm glad I'm here. Like, you feel good. And you're right. It's because they – to be on the adult ICU, I can't even imagine the amount of knowledge and like things they have to keep in their brain and developmental knowledge and stuff that's not a part of their wheelhouse is just not there. So the relief that they see when they see you is like, thank goodness, somebody that can take this piece that I don't really have the time for, nor, you know, should I? Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. That's a huge thing. And I think also like, they get so excited to learn from us to see what we're bringing and they, they want nothing more than to do like the best by their patients. So really do. That's what we're finding is like the nurses and the situations we're being called for are every once in a while. It's like a, we're going to talk about how this is probably not the best space for us to sit in. But other than that, they're calling because they're like, I know that there's this other need. They're thinking mm-hmm. purely about patient and family-centered care, which is yeah. exactly what we want everyone in healthcare to do. Mm-hmm. And just because your patient is an adult in this room on the 10th floor, they have a life. They are a human. Mm-hmm. And so that, to me, is so meaningful. And I think then the nurses do get excited. And we do a lot of very cool hospital-wide things. It's, cool is not the best word. But we do a lot of very unique hospital-wide things. So people know us in other capacities. Yeah. So that's also the beneficial. So I think that skill of that relationship building mm-hmm. in those moments of when you get on the unit and you're trying to be calm and open and whatnot to build that quick rapport with that nurse to then go in with the patient mm-hmm. and do the same thing. Right. Cause Oh yeah. Right. Like that skill in and of itself, like quick rapport building again, it's a very like globally generic skill mm-hmm. for child life, but I'm going into a room and there's, you know, a, a, a person in the bed who's sometimes younger than me because they are still an adult or there's a 50 something person or a 60 right whoever yeah. I walk in this room I introduce myself and I'm about to say to them great tell me about your kids and tell me about what's going on with you and what you know let me explain child life services and in the first four and a half minutes we're talking about how they're going to talk about the cancer diagnosis they got an hour ago mm-hmm. to their seven and nine year old who are in school right now so like there's an inherently there has to be a lot of trust that that person puts in us Mm -hmm. to just disclose all that information so quick. So you have to have that skill set, I think, to build that trust and create that safe space and that relationship in a professional way that allows people to feel like they can share that information so that I can continue to provide our services or not just me, anyone who, you know, on our team who's doing it. Yeah, that's so true. That trust has to be sometimes built so quickly because you don't have time to build long-term rapport before the thing happens where the kids show up and you, you have to do what you do, you know, Correct. so, or they're, you know, they want to talk to the kids tonight or yeah. sometimes we, I mean, don't get me wrong. Like we definitely, we do follow up, but a lot of the consults are one time. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. and, then, and then we are, we remain available forever because we're not available service. So sure. that's something we introduce, but sometimes it's a, it's a one, we might sit there for 30 minutes or an hour or even two sometimes, but that might be the only interaction we have. Maybe the kids are never even coming to the hospital and we've just had this conversation about how to navigate all this with them. So that trust is key. It is. And I see that too with um, staff, like you had mentioned too, of that trust that you're building with them. And once they see you do it, they're like, oh, I got to call. I got to call them again. It's been almost like over two years now that I've been out of the hospital and I can still remember Becca from the ICU because if that girl had a patient that even slightly needed child life, I was being called for it. <laughs> like, yep. so I, I love that. I mean, you're, you're getting, like you said, you're empowering them to do some sort of assessment, introduce your services and know this is an appropriate patient for child life. Mm-hmm. And I would love for them to come down. So that's yeah. great. 
What are some interventions or child life principles that you utilize as you follow this vulnerable and often unsupported population? I think some of the biggest interventions are, like I was saying earlier, books, which mm-hmm. again, we use books in other in other capacities, but I feel like this is one space where we have the most books. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, in our field, we call it bibliotherapy. And I feel like there was a point where I was like, is anybody using books anymore? But like Coast is somewhere where we do. And mm-hmm. we have books for end of life situations. We have books for attending funerals. We have so many books about helping kids process grief and loss and bereavement that are activity books and workbooks for all different ages and journals. And, you know, the the book um, helping kids understand a parent's serious illness, like, which is a book for caregivers. Like, so mm-hmm. for me, that is one intervention might be, I don't think it's too strong of a word. That is mm-hmm. one intervention yeah. I think is provide. And even if we're only talking and sharing the books with the caregivers and never using them with the kids, the, the family's going home and using them with the kids. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's a huge thing that has always stood out to me. I think providing the materials for those family projects, which again, like we would call legacy building or memory making, um, mm-hmm. we do, we offer lots of things, but some that I think have been really impactful are, um, it's like recycled paper mm-hmm. and they are shaped like hearts or different shapes and it, there's seeds embedded in them. Oh. And we have the family members, if they want, put the patient's thumbprint or fingerprint on it and then they can plant it and it grows a tree. So that's been a really just so simple, but very yeah. long lasting and meaningful. A lot of model magic, um, but also like, you know, that you can do molds with. We also have like a cardstock tree that we allow, you know, not allow, we encourage families to put their fingerprints on and create like a family tree, a picture they can frame. And then other things are trying to individualize what Mm -hmm. we're encouraging those types of interventions. So I can remember a time where there was a mom who was going to be extubated and she had two daughters and they used to like to sing together. Mm -hmm. The only thing she wanted was to sing with them again. And I remember saying to the nurses, how, how can we make, not like, can we, like, how can we make this happen? Mm -hmm. And we did. And they were able to sing together again and they were able to get the mom to a place where she was breathing over the vent enough to be able to, it was pretty amazing. Um, And they decided, you know, to extubate her and that's what she wanted. And she sang with her girls. And so like sometimes that individualized intervention, Mm -hmm. that's something that's meaningful for the family, um, I think is really valuable. It's always really valuable. Mm -hmm. Um, Other interventions have, I think that stand out to me are things like medical play, Mm-hmm. And a, like more traditional type preparation for what to expect. So when we're actually working with the kids and they're on the unit, being able to use pictures and video and hands-on teaching materials to help familiarize them with what they're going to come in, what they're going to see when they come into a room, or even or even creating like a doll. I can remember a time where I created a stuffed bear that had a an ileostomy, an ostomy bag because the mom was having an ileostomy and she was so excited to take it home to her son because she knew he was going to be so excited that she felt better, but so concerned that it was hurting her or what it was. So him having his own little bear with the ostomy bag was, and all the supplies was so impactful for them. Mm -hmm. Um, So a lot of very traditional interventions, similarly to what we would do with patients or siblings, right? We're just doing them with kids and adults. This has been a great conversation. I would love to head into the closing questions that I ask everyone. So my first one is if someone's listening today and they are really resonating with what you're saying about working with children of adult patients, what is one tangible action step that you would tell them to get them on the right path? I think if they're not in a like 
true, like a lot of us are leaders, but if they're right. not in a true leadership role, mm-hmm. talking to whoever is that person within their department, if that's how their department runs, to talk about the opportunities that could exist in their space. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it's a children's hospital and there's a partnering adult hospital, but no, it might be different than ours, which is a children's hospital within an adult hospital. Right. So I think talking about those opportunities and do they exist and then potentially with support reaching out to some of those units and just doing a little bit of conversation of, does this ever arise? Is this ever a need that someone's looking for? Has this ever come up before? I like to call it assessing current state Mm -hmm. and advocating for future states. So find out what, what exists, Mm -hmm. what, again, on those adult units and within your own department, and then advocate for the importance and the idea that it's not just kids who are patients that need support, but any kids impacted by healthcare and illness should be able to have those psychosocial interventions in place, I think would be the best. If you're in a more leadership role, like if you're a manager or something like that, I think you can, again, jump, maybe jump, I'll call it to the step of reaching out to some of the leaders, um, probably nursing leaders on the adult units mm-hmm. and just getting a sense of what their patient population looks like. Mm-hmm. And does it ever come up that there's kids involved, kids wanting to visit, someone's mentioning kids, someone's worried about their kids and going from there. Yeah, that's great. I do have a lot of students that follow along and listen to this podcast. So what is one thing that you'd say to them as a tip for moving through this profession? I think to remember, like what I was saying in the beginning, that our profession and the role of a child life specialist is not about us keeping it to ourselves. Mm -hmm. If we keep it to ourselves, I think two things happen. The first thing that happens is the emotional toll that that takes because we're trying to shoulder all of that support processing interventions and it's not, it's just not possible. Mm-hmm. And so inevitably you feel like you're not giving a hundred percent, even if you're giving 200% and then it leads to, I don't love the word burnout. So to me, it just leads to someone taking on too much. And then yeah. we are seeing people leave the field, I think way too soon. So I think realizing it's not about us, and we can't take it on our, all of us on ourselves. And the second reason is because it's a disservice to the kids and families. Like most of us get into this work because we want to help support kids and families through challenging situations. That is inherently the role of a child life specialist and to mitigate that trauma and to teach coping strategies. If we're the only ones who are doing that mm-hmm. and we can't be everywhere at once, then we inevitably, there will always be kids and families who are missed. Like that's, yeah. that's, something to remember. And I think that's also an important message. But if we keep it all to ourselves, we're inevitably going to have kids and families who don't get to benefit from having a really positive healthcare experience. If we take what we know and we teach, mm-hmm. right? If a teacher never taught, the students wouldn't get to come in the field. So take what you know and teach it. Yeah. And then the burden is lifted off of you a little bit. And then others can take it on too. And again, there will always be work for us to do because there's always new staff to educate. There's always new patients and families coming. But that way, you get to see the domino effect of the work you're doing. And to mm-hmm. me, it's like it's a little bit of a cheesy line, but like you can either teach a person to fish or give them a fish. If you're just handing out fish all day, what happens when you leave? Nobody gets a fish. <laughs> like, right. If, yes. you, if it's all dependent on you being present. Yeah. It's then when you're not there, those things may not happen, right? Those, mm-hmm. those practices may not be put into place. The goal is to get those things put into place so that every child, whether we're present or not, has the best, best healthcare experience they can possibly have. Yeah. And that to me, that's important. Again, there will always be work for us to do. And there are definitely times 
a million percent where we do need to be present. We mm-hmm. need to be yeah. experience. We need to be modeling. We need to be the support person. We are the sometimes the safe person who isn't doing any of the intervention. Like there's no question, mm-hmm. but overall, <laughs> that's my biggest takeaway. And I will say that. And I, I think it's part of the reason I'm still in the field. Yeah. Because I don't know if I could be in it 17, 18 years if I wasn't sharing the wealth a little bit. <laughs> yeah. I, so I'm so glad that you repeated that again because when you said it towards the beginning, I was like, this is gold. I hope I remember this because it's true. Well, and anyone who knows me and anyone who you've interviewed who knows me, and like it is genuine. Like it is, it has been my philosophy from the beginning. And I think yeah. now that I've been in the field longer and evolved, I still think it. But I'm also watching and you can choose whether this is edited out or not, yeah, but yeah, I'm yeah. watching our field bleed child life specialists. Like we are mm-hmm. losing child life specialists left and right. It's not mm-hmm. a secret. Mm-hmm. And I know that everyone is trying to figure out how to keep people in the field and bring new people in the field. And I think for students thinking about like, it's really important. And I think about this every day with my new professionals and with students that we're teaching, like how do you keep them engaged mm-hmm. and feeling supported in a field? That's hard. We're not the only hard field there. Healthcare is a hard yeah. field to be in, but it's an amazing field to be in. Like I would not still be doing this if I couldn't. I love, even on the worst days, I love getting up and going to my job. And mm-hmm. you can't say that about everything. Yeah. And students are bringing new ideas, but like you have to think about how to keep people engaged. And so you can't stay engaged in something if you feel like you're the only one who's responsible for it. It's too much because then everything that happens, you feel like is, did I do this right? Did I do, like? There's this constant right, and you're you're mm-hmm. watching it unravel. But if you have someone else who can also advocate for a comfort position, and you walk in and you're like kids already get a comfort position. I can now do amazing. Like, right. It should be, it should feel great. It shouldn't be like they're doing my job. No, they're putting in place what should happen for every kid. And I think we have yeah. to shift and see it that way to help support and keep people in the field. Yeah, I totally agree. The last question I have is if child life is a wildlife, what's the wildest part of your experience so far? Overall, the wildest part, I think for me, I swore up and down, back and forth. If you knew me 18 years ago, I never wanted to go into leadership. I said that from the beginning. I always wanted to be a bedside clinical child life specialist working with kids and families. And I think the wildest part to me professionally in that aspect was when I hit the point where I thought to myself, you know what? I actually think I want to stay in the field and transition away from daily. I still love working with kids and families, but daily Mm -hmm. clinical work to do something different and sort of step up into that umbrella. So I know it doesn't sound wild at all, but that has been the wildest thing is like thinking I would never step away from direct patient care. Yeah. So literally doing almost no direct patient care at this point in time. Yeah. That's um, wild. Yeah. Um, but the second wildest thing, which I just think is really cool is there's a particular procedure that I used to be a part of when I was in the interventional radiology space. It's called a WADA W-A-D-A. I don't even know that most hospitals aren't doing it a lot anymore. So people probably at this point have never heard of it, but it was a procedure that they were doing on kids and the kids needed to be awake for it. It was a brain mapping procedure done to localize the language centers in the brain for kids who were potentially having surgery to remove parts of the brain that were causing epileptic seizures. Mm. And it involved the kids having a catheter, not the kind that goes into like the urethra, like a catheter in the groin into like a, uh, the bloodstream, right. And up into the side of the brain and they would do an angiogram. So look at the blood vessels and then anesthetize half the brain 
and do this whole set of psychological testing, all this like memory work and naming things, and then let the brain wake up and do the same testing and then do it again on the other side of the brain. And our role as a child life specialist, the child needed to be awake. So supporting them through having that catheter placed in, you know, in mm-hmm. the, in the groin up and, and all the testing that was going on and laying perfectly still through a very, inv- it's like getting a pick line essentially, but in the groin, right? right. Very invasive procedure. Um, and it was the time we were doing it was just humor me pre iPad, which is fine. <laughs> I'm not, I'm, I mean, iPads are great, but I'm not a huge sure. fan of them always. So like that gives a little framework of like, I started child life when we didn't have iPads. And so we were doing a lot of guided imagery and I spy and storytelling and other types of diversion. And so that to me, I think was watching a child cope through that and having the staff say to us, can you come for all the adults? The kids do so much better through these procedures because in all fairness, it's very invasive, but it's not painful. Like they're numbed up and it's not particularly painful. It's just, it's a lot to cope with and there's a lot going on. Sure. Um, Different than other things that might have like, more pain or something bigger there. They can't anyway, needless to say, that was, I think the wildest experience as a child life specialist I've ever been in was supporting kids through that procedure. Oh my goodness. That does sound wild. Thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate everything that you brought to this episode and I'm really excited for people to get inspired by all that you said. Thank you. It was great to be here and I would be happy to come back anytime. (laughs) 